the last two Sundays for this series uh, on the person of Jesus, we're looking, have been looking at this final book of Revelation, uh, because it's in Revelation that we see Jesus in a new light. Uh, the Apocalypse, literally the Apocalypse of Jesus, as the book is, is called, it means the unveiling or the revealing of Jesus. It's the, um, it's the curtain pulled back so that we can see Jesus as he is uh, in both the physical and the spiritual context. Uh, as Jesus said to one of his followers, Philip, he said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so in Jesus, we actually have the perfect reflection uh, of the person and the glory and the nature of God. And so sometimes you get into this situation where in the New Testament people say, well, I, I like Jesus and I like the God of the New Testament, but I'm not, so, you know, that God of the Old Testament is kind of angry. And uh, so I, I like Jesus better than I, better than I like God. And, and, and Revelation, if you somehow come through the Bible and you come to that conclusion, the last book of Revelation is there to uh, correct you in that, in that in Jesus you see the perfect reflection of the Father. There is no God the Father in Jesus, and I like one better than the other. In Jesus you have the Lion and the Lamb. You have the full and perfect reflection of the Father in perfect justice and perfect love. And we looked at that last week. When you look at Jesus, you see the Father, His purity, His holiness, His goodness, His justice, and His love. And so we, last week we spent a little time in Revelation chapter 5 remembering that Jesus is not only the sacrificial Lamb of God, but He is also the victorious Lion of Judah. And how thankful we should be that He is the Lion, that He is the King, that He is worthy to open the scroll and worthy to sit on the throne. Because we need that Lion in our life. We need that victory over death. And we need that salvation from the Lion as much as we need the sacrifice of the Lamb. And now this week I'm going to try and review uh, to sort of summarize the, the series and to sort of wrap up Revelation. This is, there's going to be a lot of scripture today, so you can either follow along or try and keep notes in your Bible and, and jump through. But I'm going to try and review four major themes of scripture that start in Genesis and in the Old Testament. And these four major themes carry through the New Testament and they see their culmination or their completion in Revelation 19 and 22, the last chapters of the Bible. And we'll land at the end of that review on the final glory of the Lamb of God. Because really, how can you end a series on Jesus anywhere else but there? You, you have to end and land on what all of creation and all the promises and the fall and the redemption and the church and life and death and resurrection is ultimately for. You have to finalize and finish on the glory of the Lamb of God in the end. And so if you'll join me, if you would, back again in Genesis where we started. And let's try and get our arms around these four big themes or these four big ideas or these realities, whatever you want to call them, that really find their completion and their purpose in Jesus. And hopefully you'll see what I mean in about 23 or 24 minutes from now. Uh, here are the four of many themes that I could pick, but here are four core themes or problems that resolve themselves all in Jesus. Because the whole story of the Bible, the whole purpose of God's creation, everything that God is doing finds itself in Jesus. And they are this. There's a victory that must be won. There is a curse that must end. There is a blessing that must be given. And there is a glory that must be seen. And so we're going to tackle all four of these big ideas and these 
problems or things that must be resolved in Jesus, and we're going to sort of tackle them at various speeds, but we'll see them all resolved in the last few chapters of Revelation. First of all, well, there's a victory that must be won. And if you go back to Genesis 3 where it all started, uh, after the rebellion in the Garden of Eden, the serpent had deceived Eve and Adam, and God says in Genesis 3, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts and all the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And we covered this territory in other sermons, and so I'm not going to labor too hard on it here this morning but simply to remind you that there is a victory. From the very beginning, there's a victory that has to be won. That there's a victory over the serpent, a victory over death that has now entered into the world through the sin of Adam and Eve. And God says that the seed of Eve will always be at war with the serpent, with Satan. There will be enmity between them. They will always be a struggle. And eventually there would be a seed or there would be an offspring, a promised offspring that would win this war. There is a war, there is a victory that must happen. And this offspring would crush the head of the serpent even while being bruised in the process. And of course we know that this offspring is Jesus. His bruising was the cross. But his victory was the resurrection. And so Jesus, the sacrificial lamb of God, was at the time... At the same time, the triumphant lion of Judah, as far as Satan was concerned. The world saw little more than a peasant rabbi who was being crucified by the Romans for political reasons, just like a thousand others had been. But the powers and the principalities of Satan saw their defeat in the cross. And so Jesus was, as the sacrificial lamb, also the lion of Judah, winning that victory. Jesus says of himself before going to the cross, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I have received from my Father. And so Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew he was going to his sacrifice, but he knew he had the authority to win the final victory. And the Apostle Paul, if you keep going in the New Testament as you travel through, he understood exactly what victory was won on the cross because he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the victory, you realize, is not fully realized yet. Paul says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when this temporary creation puts on the new creation, then the victory will be surely realized. But from the very beginning, from the time of Adam and Eve, from the time in the garden, there was a victory that had to be won. And that's that first big theme that's going, is a victory has to be won. And the victory is won ultimately on the cross, but it's not fully realized yet. And so that victory is yet to be won. But we keep going with me in Genesis. We'll keep going. And, and so 
the second thing is that there is a curse that must end. And as you recall, the plan for Jesus all started when Adam and Eve decided that they knew better than God what was good for them. And they listened to the lie of the serpent, Satan. And everyone who listens to those lies, like everybody else who listens to Satan, they sinned against God. And one of the results of that sin was a curse on creation as we see it today. And this is another big theme that is going through, a big problem that ultimately has to be resolved. It's got to be wrapped up somehow. There's a curse on creation as we see it, or it's what we call our fallen nature, the sickness and the death and the thorns and the deformities and the cancer and the toxins. They were not a part of God's plan for this creation. There's a curse on the creation, as beautiful as, as it might appear in Halliburton. It's not what God intended. And in Genesis 3.17, we see where this begins. He says to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit of the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the fields. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, and for dust you are, and for dust you will return. And so there's a curse that lays over the whole world. The whole universe, it's a curse that eats away and destroys at the glory that God intended. And every time you pull a thistle out of your garden, or you see a tree that is rotted from disease, or you see a twisted limb, or a crooked back, or a spot on an x-ray, that is the curse on creation. It is a pointer in the physical world to the devastation of sin in our spiritual world. And this is a curse that must be lifted. It has to end. There is no glory in a curse that doesn't end. We can't continue under this curse forever or there is no glory for God. There is no hope in a creation that cannot be redeemed. And the Apostle Paul, again, knows that the curse must end. And he knows that it will come to an end with the revelation that comes in Jesus Christ. And if you, again, we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and we see in Romans chapter 8, as the Apostle Paul, he understands what's going on here, both with the victory and now with the curse. And he says, for creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Anybody groaning this week, this month, this year? We know we prayed for a lot that are groaning. The creation groans. We groan. We know that this is not how it's supposed to be. And so there's a curse that has to be lifted in addition to the victory that has to be won. Creation is groaning. We are groaning. But it's not a futile curse. Notice what Paul says. It is not subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. It's a hopeful curse, if you can imagine such a thing. The curse is actually accomplishing something miraculous. Just like the groaning of childbirth, the pain of labor through the night results in this astonishing new life in the morning. And that is the curse that creation is under. It's a curse filled with hope in what is coming. So there's a victory that has to be won. And there's a curse that has to be lifted. And thirdly, 
there is a blessing that must be given to the nations. From Eve, as we talked about in earlier sermons, all the families of mankind come. And from all the families of mankind that were on the earth, God selects one man, Abraham, not through any goodness of Abraham, not because of any merit of Abraham, but by God's own wisdom and choice, He chose Abraham through whom He would put and keep His promises to end the curse and win the victory. Through Abraham, God made a worldwide promise to every nation. Genesis 22. Keep going with me in Genesis. We go back again. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and your offspring excuse me, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so we have an offspring of Eve who must win a victory and end a curse and through now whom the whole earth, every nation must be blessed. If this is in the Old Testament, there must be something that illuminates this in the New Testament, right? I mean, that's what we've sort of been following along here and what do you know there is? It's the Apostle Paul again to your rescue. Like really, if you want to understand what the Bible is saying, read the Bible. The Bible... The Bible is far and away the best place to turn to to understand the Bible. And so we look here and we try to understand this blessing that must go out to the whole world. And in this case, Paul is writing in a letter to his Christian friends in Galatia who were struggling under a lot of misinformation about how God's plan was unfolding through Jesus to the whole world. And this was a church of Greeks and Romans and Turks and Arabs. It was your typical Middle Eastern melting pot kind of church in a Roman town called Galatia. And it had a mixture of cultures and ethnicities. And they were being told by some people there that they had to conform to Jewish law or the promise of God couldn't extend to them. They were being told that they had to sort of become like Israel because this, this blessing was for Israel. And so they had to become like Israel in order to have the, the blessing of God. But Paul comes in and he gets a whiff of this teaching. And he comes in and writes this letter to Galatia. And, he, and Paul rightly understands this promise of God to bless the nations and how that blessing is fulfilled in Jesus. He says in Galatians to this letter to this church, He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. There's that curse again. By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul gets it. Paul understands that there is a blessing that must go out to the nations. And that this blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles, which is to say everybody who isn't Jewish, the whole world, comes through Jesus Christ. And he continues on later in this letter. He says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. And speaking of baptism, we're having a baptism service on Thanksgiving. So if you've been sitting on the fence wondering about baptism, this Thanksgiving your family's going to be here anyway. And we're going to baptize some people. So, so sign up for that. Come talk to me. 
Because as many of you as were baptized in Christ, you have put on Christ. And so there's a blessing that Paul here unpacks for these people in Galatia. He says, yeah, there's this blessing that must go out to the whole world. And that blessing of Abraham goes out to the whole world through Jesus Christ. But as we look at the around the world, we realize that like the curse, it's not completely lifted. Like the victory is not completely won. The blessing has not flowed completely to every nation and to all peoples. Right? There is still a future fulfillment that is partially here. There's a, there's a partial lifting of the curse. There's a, a victory that's in the process of being won. There's a blessing that's in the process of going out to the whole world, but it's not yet complete. And then finally, I'll just go with four realities today that must be fulfilled in Jesus. We could do more, but this is a big one. There's a glory that must be seen. There's also a glory that must still be seen. And I'm just going to move out of Genesis for this one, although I could have pulled verses from Genesis 49 and other chapters if there, if I needed to. But what we want to see at this point is that through all the Old Testament, God has been promising the nation of Israel that there is a day coming when the curse will be over and the victory will be won and the blessing will be realized. And that final day for Israel, when that final day, when these things finally come to an end, there is a glory. There is a glory of their God that will be seen in a way which it has never been seen before. There's a glory that needs to be seen in a way that's never been seen. The glory of the pillar of cloud by day and the glory of the pillar of fire at night as the people of Israel experienced it in the desert will be nothing compared to this glory. The glory of the temple with the Holy of Holies and the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant and the holy place will be nothing compared to this glory. It's a glory that's going to surpass all the glory that Israel or the world has seen of God up until this day. It will surpass even the glory of creation. And one of the best places to see the promises to Israel and to find this glory is in Isaiah 60. And in Isaiah 60, God is giving a revelation to Isaiah, which mirrors very closely what we're going to look at in in Revelation. And he's speaking to Isaiah of his promise of this glory. And he says of his people, instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stone, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. And violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning shall be ended, and your people shall be righteous, and they shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. And so God says here through Isaiah, He says, there's a glory coming for you, and a glory that you are going to see to the point where you don't need the sun and the moon anymore. Because I'm going to be your light. And this glory and this light is going to be everlasting. And God will be your glory. And that's fantastic, but it's not here yet. This is another one of those promises that isn't here yet. Can we say, can Israel say right now that there's no violence in their land? (laughs) Is this here yet? Is Israel experiencing peace? 
Can they, are their leaders righteous? Are their days of mourning ended? Would we say that the Middle East is filled with righteous people? No, not yet. And so in addition to a victory that must be won, and a curse that must end, and a blessing that must go out to all the nation, there's a glory that we've started to see, but hasn't fully been seen yet. And there's a glory before all this is done that has to be seen. So, okay, finally. Not even 23 minutes later. Now I think we are ready to start on the sermon. No, I'm just kidding. Now we're ready to look into the final chapters of Revelation. To see Jesus with the curtain pulled back. The Lion and the Lamb. And it's the final installment for us until we meet Him face to face. So let's just let the Word of God speak to us. And I want you to listen for the victory and the end of the curse and the blessing to the nations and the glory. Revelation 19, 19 to 21. And you remember last week we looked at Revelation 19 and saw the rider on the white horse and the sword in his mouth and his robe stiffed in blood and the name on his thigh. And now we continue on in 19 and we see the battle that must be won. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And in Revelation 21, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Continuing on in Revelation 21, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it, and nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and down the middle of the great street of the city, and on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree or for the healing of the nations, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. And they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They will not need the lamp, the light of the lamp, or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever.
think, hopefully, you see here at the final culmination these things that had to happen, these four things. And we're here now in Revelation with the veil lifted and the curtain pulled back. And along with the Apostle John, we see a vision of the future, a time and a space, and the physical and spiritual realities of what God has accomplished through Jesus. A final victory is won. The armies that gathered to make war against Jesus and against His army, but the beast is captured and the false prophet is destroyed and the armies that were against Jesus are slain by the Lion of Judah. And there's no longer any curse. On each side of the river stand the trees of life that were denied to Adam and Eve, but they are now available and they are there for the healing of the whole nations. There's no curse anymore on creation. It's a new heaven and a new earth. And the blessing now finally goes out to all the nations. The nations walk by the light of the glory of God. And the leaves of the trees of life are for the healing of those nations. And the kings of the world come up to the new Jerusalem. Because the blessing is finally complete and is going out to the whole world in the way that God promised to Abraham. And above all, above all, the glory of the Lamb is fully seen. The throne of God and of the Lamb is in the city, and there's no need for the sun or no need for the moon or a lamp, because the glory of the Lamb is the light for the nations and His servants who will see His face and they will reign forever. And so, the victory is won, the curse is lifted, the blessing has gone out, the glory is finally seen. Here, at the end, God gives us this picture through John. And God's people are no longer fearing violence. And there's complete peace forever in the glory of the light of the Lamb of God. So that's awesome, to say the least. Now, how do we participate in this? What does it mean for us living in what is often called the already but not yet kingdom of God? Because this is all accomplished. This is done. Okay, the veil has been pulled back. The curtain has been pulled back. God is showing us through the vision to John what has been done. The blessing has happened. The victory has been won on the cross. But we're living in the already reality of this, but the not yet full completion of it. And so what does it mean for us? And so the first and maybe the only application you need this morning is just grasping the staggering reality that this is what God is doing. That this is what is going on in the history of mankind. That this is what God is doing right now in your lives. That this is what God is doing through each and every one of His churches and through the families of those that follow Him. That, that this is what the Bible is about. Just grasping the reality that this is actually what is going on behind the scenes. Behind football practices and hockey games and baseball pennant races and politics and going to work and getting the groceries and fixing your boat or not having your boat fixed, whatever. All this stuff that's going on, this is what's really going on. That's the application. That's the first thing. And maybe that's enough. It's just, it's just grasping and, and apprehending that reality. That we are not really living our meaningless lives in a purposeless universe, but in fact we're participating in a divine plan that culminates in God's eternal glory and our eternal joy. But if you need more than that, I don't, but if you need more than that, 
I'm just going to finish with four quick applications that perhaps give us a little bit more guidance about what it actually means for the day-to-day of these four things being accomplished. First of all, because the final victory is already won, then we can live today with courage. We live today with courage as Christians, knowing that death is not a threat. Death is not an end. Death has lost its sting. The only thing death can do to a Christian is bring you to Jesus. And so we can live with this knowledge. We can live today with courage because this victory has already been won. It's certain for those who believe in Jesus. Secondly, because the curse is not futile, then we can suffer in hope. We understand that the sickness of our bodies, the calamities of the world, the tragedies of our life are not God's judgment on us, but in fact are designed to drive us closer to God in the knowledge that He has planned an end to the curse. And the end to that curse is our eternal joy in a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation with new bodies that never suffer. And so because we know that the curse is not futile, when we do suffer, we suffer in hope, not in despair. Thirdly, because Jesus has come to become a blessing to the nations right now, that means for us today that we have a purpose in this life. That we have a purpose, that our life is not meaningless, that we are actually called to join God and join Jesus in His blessing to the nation, to join in spreading the blessing of Jesus and the hope of the gospel to all people. There is a final reality of this blessing in the future, which is all the nations being blessed, all of them coming up to Jerusalem and the, the river running out and the tree of life and the blessing of of heaven going out to all the nations and all the tribes and tongues worshiping at the throne. There is a final reality of this blessing in the future that we all have a purpose to be working towards today, which is sharing that blessing of Jesus. And so your life has purpose because there is a blessing that goes out to the nations. And then finally, because there is a perfect glory to be revealed, we have joy now. As by beholding that glory even dimly, as Paul says in in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are beholding the image of Jesus and being transformed, even though it's in a mirror darkly, we are being transformed as we behold Jesus. And so because there is a perfect glory to be revealed that we haven't seen yet, we have joy now. Because beholding that glory even dimly in the Scriptures and in Jesus, we are being transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And we are being prepared for a glory that we cannot comprehend when we reflect Him perfectly. Because it says there in Revelation 22.4, you remember the culmination of that part of the, the four points. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and there will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. We are going to see His face. And in the scene of His face, we're going to be fully transformed and fully live in this glory. And so because the final victory has been won, we have courage today. Because the curse is not futile, we suffer in hope. Because Jesus has come and has become a blessing to the nation, we have a purpose to participate in. And because there is a perfect glory to be revealed, we have joy now as we just dimly reflect that glory of Jesus and we be transformed 
day by day, week by week, as, as Mark prayed, that we are being transformed to be recipients of the perfect glory someday in the future. That's what all this means. So it's been a bit of a ride here on this series through Jesus. And I wanted to finish today just sort of with this culmination from Genesis through the New Testament to Revelation. To try to, try to just drive home to get a picture that this whole thing is about Jesus. And there's more than just these four things. I just picked four for the sake of time. These four things have all started, are being accomplished, will be accomplished through Christ Jesus. And our incredible privilege and adventure and joy is that God calls us to participate in this. This is what is really going on. This is real life. Work and groceries and teacher meetings and all of that stuff. That's just a dim distraction from the glory of what's really going on. That's what we need to see in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your revelation. We thank you for this unveiling, this lifting of the curtain so that John could see and could record for us the spiritual realities of what is taking place. And it was too much for him. I mean, it's like a dream to him. It's visions, it's images, it's pictures, it's, it's jewels on thrones and seas of glass and beasts with many eyes and wings and multitudes of angels. And it's just mind-blowing. And so, Lord, if that's, if that's what John could get down on paper from what you showed him, we can't imagine what it's going to be like when we get there. And so, Father, I just pray that as we read your word, pray, reflect on your goodness, on your law, on your precepts, on your teaching, on your Son, that we would behold that glory of the Lamb. And we would see crystal clear, not just these four things, but the 4,000 things that you are accomplishing, the 4 million things that you are accomplishing in your creation and in your plan, in order to culminate in glory to the Lamb of God. Wow. We just give you praise, Lord, that we get to participate, however poorly, however dimly, in that amazing reality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.